Welcome to the Resonate Boise Sermons Podcast. Today, you'll be hearing from our site pastor, Jonah Link, as he continues our series going through the book of Colossians, looking at the marks of a mature Christian. morning guys how's it going good it's going decent good after that thanksgiving party i'm like really looking forward to christmas i don't know about you guys but we had more food than we knew what to do with which was great a little change of pace for us right and a lot of people like it was so much fun so i hope you had a great time as well and it has me obviously looking forward to christmas Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've been diving into the book of Colossians, trying to figure out what exactly Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Colossae. And ultimately, we're boiling this whole series down as we're looking at the book of Colossians to uh, chapter 1, verse 28, where it says this, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So if one day we are to be presented before God, fully mature, we've got some work to do, right? (laughs) Like this is an obvious answer for us. We have some work to do. After last week, there was probably some moments of just conviction as Mark walked through the first part of chapter three, where Paul really clearly communicates that we need to put off our old sinful nature. He uses the language of put off, like you have clothes of sinful nature on your body. You got to get rid of those, get rid of your sinful nature, put it to death because it, that's exactly what it produces. So Mark prompted us to put off our sin. And if we, in fact, have been raised with Christ, as the text says, if we are raised with him in his resurrection and we have salvation in Christ, there isn't room for us to live in our sin. That is what Paul teaches. I think Mark got the short end of the stick between the first part of chapter three. He talked about sin all last week and he got to baptize a couple of people. So he got the good end of the stick on that one. But this week I get to talk about the incredible second piece where Paul talks about how to put on the new self, how to put on the new self. A couple of weeks ago, I got to go golfing with my buddy, Kyle, and he's been my golf buddy for the last couple of years. And so we went out, tried to catch the last good day. It was like 60 degrees, middle of November. It doesn't make any sense, but we're in Boise, so it does. We're out there golfing. We're hitting the ball, doing our thing. If you don't know anything about golf, you take a really small ball, you hit it into a really small hole that's really far away with expensive sticks. That's essentially what golf is. And I was not hitting the ball very well to start the day. I was not hitting it well at all. And so every time I would hit, Kai would look at me and he would say something along the lines of, Jonah, that wasn't very good. Jonah, you should try harder. That wasn't a good hit whatsoever. Like you need to figure out how to hit a tee shot. And none of that was helpful, as you can imagine. None of it taught me how to hit a good tee shot. None of it made me even want to hit a good tee shot. It was rather annoying in some respects. And ultimately what he was communicating to me is, Jonah, you're just not that good at golf. And that is true. I am working on it. But as we worked through the last part of Colossians 3, there might have been a moment for you when you look at the text and you're like, Mark just taught through everything about my sinful nature that I need to put off, that I need to put to death in me. I need to sever the supply line to my sin. And maybe that was rather defeating at the moment. 
Granted, he did an incredible job helping us understand the truth of the gospel and the grace that we can receive from Jesus. But at the same time, clarity, there was a moment where we got clarity on what was wrong in us and not necessarily clarity yet on what to, or how to do it right. Same thing with my golf swing. I got a ton of clarity on what was wrong and I got no help on how to fix it. And so this week, as we've put to death our sin, what are we going to put on? If we use this language and imagery of clothing, we've taken off our sinful nature and we are aiming to put on Christ's nature. That's what we are aiming to put on. And so we're going to call this idea today embodied love. Embodied love. And so this is what embodied means. An expression or uh, an expression of or gift uh, or give a tangible or visible form to. So you have an expression of, or you give uh, tangible or visible form to. That is what it means to embody. When you take on a nature, you are giving a visible form to something. We are to embody love, as we see in the text. And so what does it look like to embody love? What does it look like? We're going to be in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15, if you have your copy of Scripture. That's what Paul writes. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So this is the text that we're going to work through today, and I believe Paul gives us a really clear way to step into and live into putting on this new self. That's what we're going to talk about ultimately today. And so what virtues are, is Jesus essentially using Paul to help us embody. Before we get into everything that the text says, and I teach through that, I want us to spend literally four minutes in prayer. I want us to spend four minutes in prayer and walking through these four different prompts that I think are going to help us become one with Christ as we consider what it looks like to put off this old self and put on this new self. I think there is no better place to go than to God himself this morning as we consider what it looks like to embody love. And so I'm going to guide us through a prayer time. You can pray in your head by yourself. You can pray with the people next to you if you would like. You can pray out loud by yourself. You can move about the room if you need to. We're going to spend four minutes praying together. And so the, the first prompt that I want to lead us through, um, all four are found in the book of Colossians as we've already walked through them. And so the first one is reverence. I want us to spend literally a minute praying through this idea that Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is found in verse 1. So we're going to spend one minute just praising God for who he is. Praising God that he has allowed you to even know him. Praise God that he is worthy of our praise, of our worship, of our adoration. He spoke this world into existence. Whatever you need to do in order to give reverence to the God that we sit here today to worship and hear from. Okay, so we're going to spend one minute. Ashley's going to throw on some house music, and I want you to spend one minute praying over this topic, and then I'll close this out in prayer and lead us into the next one. Sound good?
Okay, spend one minute praying through this idea of reverence. God, we praise you because you are, are worthy of all of our praise, adoration. God, you, you spoke this world into existence. You uh, love us dearly. You, you want to draw near to us. So God, we praise you for all the realities that were prayed uh, in this moment. Amen. Second thing is response. As you think about last week, maybe you came in today thinking about your sin and severing the supply lines of your sin. Maybe you had moments last week where you were able to sever those supply lines. You were able to invite community into your sin. You were able to confess to the Lord, uh, repent and turn from your sin and turn to the cross. Maybe you had a moment like that and maybe you, you didn't. Regardless of what last week looked like for you up to this moment, we get to respond as we look at verse five. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? And so for the next minute, uh, take time, go to God and ask him to put to death what is earthly in you. Confess your sin to God. Lord, forgive us when we sin against you. Lord, we, we know that your design for us is perfect, yet we still choose our own way. Lord, forgive me of anxiety over the last week and uh, thinking that I could figure out things on my own when ultimately, God, the, the, a reliance upon you is, is pivotal to even our salvation. So how much more can you, uh, uh, how much more are you deserving of our trust in those moments? So Lord, would you forgive us and thank you for your forgiveness all in the same, amen. Uh, lastly is readiness, readiness. And we see this in verse 11 where it says here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So we are in Christ. We are unified because of what he accomplished on the cross for us. And so over the next minute, I want you to specifically pray that this body of believers, body of followers of Jesus would be unified through his word and through our prayers. So would you just take a minute just praying that we would be unified as one body. Lord, would you make us ready this morning as we hear from your word and as we respond to what you have to say to us this morning. God, make our hearts ready. Make our ears ready to hear and uh, our bodies just ready to respond, God, to what you have for us this morning. Lord, would you unify us as you, the one body that you envision being your church. God, unify us this morning through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says, now, now that you've put your sin to death, you have some attributes that you now need to put on. You have some virtues that you need to take up. So Colossians 3, 12 through 13 says this. We're going to start with the first two verses. It says, put on then, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you you must also forgive. And so verse 12, what does Paul say about the followers of Jesus in Colossae? They are God's chosen ones. They are holy and they are beloved. It says those three things about this group of people. And we, there's a significance for us as we sit here today. As you're, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, those three things are incredibly significant to us because this combined with verse 11 that we just prayed through, that we are to be unified, no matter what your background is, you are God's 
beloved. And you see this play out because if you look at the Old Testament, you have the Israelites who are distinctly God's chosen people, his holy people that are set apart. You see this in Deuteronomy 7, 6. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So the Israelites, they are set apart in the book of Deuteronomy. Exodus 19, five through six says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So historically, up until the coming of Christ, only Israel was God's chosen people. But there is something that changes in this moment. When Jesus resurrects from the grave, he commissions Paul specifically to reach those who are not Israelites. That's what Paul says in verse 11. In other words, you are now God's chosen ones. Church and call say followers of Jesus. You are now God's chosen ones, holy and set apart. You're holy and set apart. And this is incredible news for us today because that is where we find ourselves. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room today, you are to be holy, set apart. You are a part of God's chosen people. And how should these people live? This is what Paul outlines for us. Number one, have compassionate hearts. Be kind, humility, meekness, patience, bearing one another in love and forgiving one another. That's a, that's a list, right? <laughs> that is a lot for us to consider. If you were to put your life under a microscope, that is a lot for us to consider. And as God's chosen, holy, which means to be set apart, if that's who we are to be, we need to be able to live into these seven virtues that Paul writes about. And so Tori and I, we're in the middle of walking our first couple through marriage counseling, and it's been a joy, an honor. It's so fun. And one of the things that Tori and I are learning is we still have so much to learn about each other been married for just over five years, and it seems like we are just learning new stuff every day, which makes it so interesting and so fun, all in the same. The curriculum that we're going through had an exercise for us a couple of weeks ago. It has about 14 virtues that we would all say are good that you would want in a spouse. This exercise was for each of us to do individually, and I was to sit there, go through all 14, and rate myself on a scale of one to seven, seven being the best. Tori was to do the same thing for herself, but then along with that, we were to rate our spouse in all of those same categories from one to seven. And they were to compare answers and talk about where there might be a discrepancy. We got to one of the virtues, um, I got to it, and it is tender. And I thought to myself, I was like, I think I'm pretty tender. I think I'm pretty uh, soft-spoken. I, I, I'd give myself a six, you know? What do you guys think Tori gave me? Dude, how'd you guys know? Uh, it's a little offending, but that's, that's okay. Call it my pride, my arrogance, whatever. Um, it's probably all true, one and the same. But she gave me a two, and I was baffled. I was like, wait, really? Like, I'm that far away from being tender? That is so hard to hear. It's so rude, but also so helpful for me to understand for the first time in a long time that that's not something that I am currently living into. 
And so I was looking at this list even this week as I was putting my life under a microscope, and I looked at the very first one. I think that lack of tenderness is a clear um, moment where I was able to say, I have maybe a lack of compassion within my heart, and tying that to this idea of tenderness. So I bet for each of you, as you look through those seven virtues, you might have a similar moment that I did this last week. You might say, that's not something that I would use to describe the way that I live. And praise God for his grace, right? Praise God for his grace to help us see maybe for the first time, this isn't something that we are walking in, but we also know from God's word, this is something that we should be walking in. Paul tells us to put it on. And so let's walk through each one of these compassionate hearts. I told you how I'm not living into this, but how do you live into or put on a compassionate heart? Well, people around you in, in pain, does your heart break as theirs is? When your, your best friend is having a really hard day and they're crying, are you able to empathize with them? empathize with them and not just jump in and solve the problem as I often do, which probably equated to my two on the tenderness scale. There's a reality that we, at least men in the room, more than likely like to solve problems. We like to just fix things. I have a savior complex sometimes where I think that I can just make it all better. And that, that can lead me away from having just a compassionate heart that just cares deeply for people that are in a difficult situation. Christian author Billy Smith says this, God's compassionate heart is always sensitive to those who cry out for mercy. And so having a compassionate heart is after God's own heart. He's had incredible compassion on us. So let's embody that to the church specifically and also to the world around us. Number two is kindness. Kindness often looks like putting the needs of others before yourself. Often looks like going out of your way to serve those around you. When you're kind to others, it reflects the very love that God has for each of you. So how much more should we put on kindness as we operate towards the world around us? Humility. When you're humble, you view yourself appropriately with how God values you. There's no false humility, which says, oh yeah, I am humble. I'm operating in humility when ultimately you have no actual desire to operate in humility. And it obviously does not look like operating in pride and arrogance, which I have succumbed to in the past for sure. So Philippians 2, it's a great example of the humility that we are to walk in when Paul writes about Jesus and how he was at the right hand of God, came down to earth, took on the form of us humans, lived the life that we couldn't live, yet endured all the things that we endure in this sinful and broken world, and humbly went to the cross and died on our behalf so that we might have life in him. This is the example of humility that Paul writes about and draws our attention to when you consider the idea of humility. It is putting others' interests far above your own, yet still ascribing to yourself the value that God ascribes to you. Because God sees you, sees you as incredibly valuable. Number four, uh, meekness. This idea is brought up in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And meekness comes down to this idea of humility, just like we had just talked about, and kind of a lowliness in heart. A lowliness in heart. Those who are meek are often, they're gentle, 
They're, they're mild. They are lowly in moments. But the ultimate reason for their meekness and for their lowliness is because they truly believe that God is in control. That God is in control, therefore they don't have to impose their will. They don't have to trample on others because they know that God will provide their every need. They know that God is ultimately in control. Number five is patience. Patience, I think, is best described as being able to wait without haste or hurry. We can all, we can all wait, but we might not be patient while we're waiting. And that's super true as I think about even being a father for the first time and, and watching Levi not really listen to us at all when we're trying to get him ready to leave the house. And Tori and I are like sweating as we're trying to get him out the door just to be on time to wherever we're going. And it's really hard to be patient. It is really hard for us to be patient in those moments. And there's probably moments for you, even as you look forward to Thanksgiving, where you know your patience is going to be tested. Paul says, put on patience as God's chosen ones. You are to put on patience. Just like God has been patient with us, we've all sinned and turned our backs on God himself, yet he is patient with us. For the two and a half, three years, I was completely walking the other direction from God. He continued to pursue me and be patient with me. I'm sure each of you have moments where you have understood that God was patient with you. How much more should we put on patience ourselves with those around us? Number six, bearing with one another. This one is interesting. As I studied it, it was incredibly fascinating to me because you could substitute the word tolerate in here uh, according to the Greek. You could put in tolerate. Not as if the one another's described in the text are just annoying per se, but rather it seems like Paul is acknowledging within the church that people are different. People have different hobbies, different interests, different abilities, different skills, and we are to bear with one another. We're supposed to come alongside each other and continue to be unified even though we're, we might be different. And so even us in this room, we aren't the same. Like we have different hobbies, different interests. Daniel and I were talking a couple weeks ago about Formula One. And I know some of you in the room love Formula One. Mostly, there's like four of you, right? I, I don't know. But they love Formula One. Personally, I don't really care to watch cars zigzag at really high rates of speed. Like, that's just not really my thing. But I could sit down and watch them golf, which would put Daniel to sleep. Puts my family to sleep. They don't watch it with me either. But the reality is we are all built a little bit different, right? We have different interests, different hobbies, different things that we love to spend time doing. But what's incredible is when Daniel and I spend time praying together or talking about things of the Lord together, it's incredibly unifying. And we tend to forget a lot about our differences and focus on what actually unifies us. So bearing with one another looks like remembering what unifies you rather than what makes you different. That is what it looks like to bear with one another. It allows you to bear through and endure the differences that ultimately don't matter. The seventh thing that we see is forgiving one another. This is the biggest one that it seems like out of the seven. Forgiving those who sin against you, that is hard. That's something that none of us are initially equipped to do. We naturally, in our sinful nature, want to give them worse than we got it, right? If you have siblings, you know this full well. Because for me, Daniel, when he would come and break my Legos when I was a kid, I wanted to break his nose. That's just like how it was. I'm not saying it's right, because obviously it's wrong, 
But there was something in me that wanted him to hurt worse than I hurt when he broke my Legos. And that's just how it was. But forgiveness is the exact opposite of how I felt about Daniel. And putting on the new self means that we are walking in maturity in such a way that we are able to forgive those that sin even the most, in the most grievous of ways against us. We can do that because we understand that Jesus has forgiven us. I think that was one of the most valuable things about Mark's sermon from last week is it gave us eyes to see how clearly we, are, we were born outside of God's design. We were living in a way that was completely contrary to God's design and sin equals death. But when we are in Christ, we receive grace and forgiveness for those things. And if we understand that, how much more should we give that to the people around us is what Paul is saying. So above all, Paul says in verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul continues with this theme of this uh, figurative language of taking off and putting on clothes. And this is how we are to treat these virtues. We are to put on patience, put on kindness, choose to walk in forgiveness. This language insinuates that we choose to put them on as you put on a jacket when you walked out of your house and you saw that it was raining. You put on a jacket and you walked out the door. Much is like what Paul is communicating right here. Back in the time of Jesus, what they wore was like, uh, they started with a tunic. That was like their underwear for, for us. They would wear a tunic. It was kind of like a tall tee. And they would wear that as their underwear. They would throw on a second tunic to dress it up a little bit and to be like wearing normal street clothes as we'd wear a t-shirt and jeans. And then thirdly, if the weather permitted, they'd throw a cloak on top of it, which was kind of like a poncho for us. And so that was how they would layer their clothing. And it seems like Paul is using this picture that they would have understood at the time to describe these seven virtues as that base layer and then throw love on top of that. Put love on top of that and it binds it all together in perfect harmony. So this idea of love, I mean, it's spoken about all over the New Testament. I, I could give you example after example, but the main idea we need to understand here is that love ties together virtues. Love ties together these virtues. Love makes these virtues work together in harmony or work perfectly together. A couple examples. Without a deep love for God's people around you, you might do some really kind things in the world and it have nothing to do with love. I think about the people that have a lot of money in the world and give out these massive checks on national television. Like, is, is that because they have a deep love for this people group, for these individuals that are hurting? Or is that to show the world around them that they can give and they're a good person? Is it out of good works or is it out of a deep love? Without love, Patience can quickly turn passive-aggressive. We've probably all stepped into that at some point, right? Maybe it's just me. Uh, but we've probably all been there in relationships where you are not operating out of a deep love, where you want to be patient because you understand how patient Christ has been with us. And you're being patient just to get him out of your hair, maybe. 
without a deep love for God's people, forgiveness can quickly get to a point where you just want to disassociate with someone by just saying, I forgive you, just get out of here. And there's not like an actual deep love for this, purpose, for this person and an understanding of how you've been forgiven. And this is the idea that I think Paul is trying to communicate is that love binds these virtues together in perfect harmony. So let's not for a second think that we can just live into these seven virtues, throw love to the side and think we're doing all right. We have to have a deep understanding of Christ's love and let that take root in our hearts. We have to let Christ's love take root in our hearts. And Paul ends the first half of this thought of putting on the new self with a final command. It says this in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So this seems to be Paul wrapping up the first half of his thought of putting on the new self. Up to this point, we've been using this language of clothing and putting off the sinful nature and putting on this new nature. And at this moment, Paul seems to be showing his deep, deep concern for the unity within the church, the unity of the believers, with everything going on around them. We've talked about some of the false teaching that was occurring. You obviously, with the language of forgiving one another, there is probably some drama going on in the Colossian church. We're no stranger to drama, us humans, right? And so Paul wants to make sure that they are operating in complete unity. Is, is peace not one of the words that you might use to describe unity? Think about your own walk with Jesus. I can't tell you how many baptism stories I've heard where people come up on stage, share their testimony and how God saved them and them not use the word peace. It seems to happen every single time when someone shares what Jesus has done in their heart and in their life, there is a feeling, a, a moment where they experience a deep-seated peace within their life. And I think this is evidenced by John 14, 27, where Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus himself said that he has left peace with us. And Paul also says it in Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility, there that word is again, gentleness, patience, bearing one, or patience with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity the spirit and the bond of peace. There is a peace that should exist in our lives as followers of Jesus. Paul says that the peace of Christ produces unity between all of us. The peace that Christ imparts to us makes us be unified, which is a beautiful picture. And we are to let that peace within us rule our hearts, rule our hearts. And I think this idea of letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts would be pretty easy for us to be like, yeah, I understand that, let's move on. But let's sit here for a minute. This word rule, it translates from the Greek that, and it describes the activity of an umpire. You know, like in sports, an umpire, someone who renders the verdict when there is a contested situation. I often just go straight to sports, like baseball. They have literal umpires, that there's two contesting teams and the umpire is there to make sure everything goes down fairly. Basketball, you have the referees. I don't know if you're into baking shows. They have judges. Same idea. Formula One officials, stewards, 
That's cool. Um, but you have people in all these contested situations that are acting as the umpire, and the peace of Christ must rule. It must umpire. It must govern. It, it must be given preference in any contested situation, is what Paul is saying here. And this is where we experience unity within the church, according to Paul. So Jesus himself has left us with peace. Will you let it rule? Will you let it rule? Church, we have the ability to put on these virtues because the spirit of God dwells in us. We can't do it on our own, right? We often get in arguments and we don't let peace rule at times. We love to get in these moments where we have to win. That's part of my personality, which is so difficult. And I have to be so keenly aware that I need to put off my old self that just competes like crazy and be able to put on the new self that operates with the peace of Christ. And so my question for you is, will you put on these virtues? Will you choose to put them on as you leave this space today? Will you choose to put them on? Will you put to death what is sinful in you as we prayed prayers of confession not too long ago? Would you choose to walk in these ways that Paul says, this is how God's people, God's chosen and holy and set apart people are intended to walk in. As you step into Thanksgiving, maybe you're going to your family's house and it's a hard place for you to walk in these virtues. Maybe it's a very difficult time for you. Maybe you could look at one of these seven and say, I'm going to treat my family in such a way that is incredibly patient. I'm gonna let the peace of Christ rule. Yeah, Paul is talking about within the church, but if it applies within the church, how much more should we aim for letting the peace of Christ rule in homes of unbelieving family? Family can be a difficult thing. Sin hasn't only separated us from God, but it hurts relationships all the time, right? It hurts our relationships. But these seven virtues are how Paul expects God's chosen to operate. And he is pushing the church and call say, let's operate in these seven ways. And above all, let's put on love because it binds all of them together in perfect unity. Binds them all together in perfect unity. And then on top of that, we're gonna let the peace of Christ rule. Whatever the situation, as we operate within these virtues, as we put on the new self, likewise, we are going to let the peace of Christ rule in our homes. Let the peace of Christ rule in our relationships, in our friendships. Let the peace of Christ rule. So church, my charge for you as you go into Thanksgiving break, as you go into time with your family, as you go back to work tomorrow, whatever that looks like for you, would you let the peace of Christ rule and choose to put on the new self? So the band's gonna lead us in some worship and I just want to charge you again, would you consider put on the new self, live as the chosen people that you are. We love you.